Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. Yes, I did say Matthew chapter 15. And please turn with me to Mark chapter 7. So again, that's two passages of Scripture. The first, Matthew chapter 15, and the second, Mark chapter 7. The title for this sermon is Great Faith. Great Faith. That subject, that motif, biblical motif, should concern us for a number of reasons. Let me suggest a few. The first is this. The Bible tells us that we are saved by grace through faith. And so God's grace is the efficient cause of our salvation. Uh, The Father elects us by his grace. The Son redeems us by his grace. The Spirit regenerates us, causes us to be born again by his grace. Grace is the cause of our salvation. And yet it is a salvation that we receive through faith. And so the instrumental cause of our salvation is faith. Salvation is a gift we receive through faith. Knowing that, I want to know what faith is. And I want to know what faith looks like. Let me give you another reason why this subject is so important. The Bible tells us that the just, the righteous, shall live by faith. So God, by his grace, has saved me through faith. And now he has called me to live as a Christian by faith. And faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So much of the Christian faith consists of what? Promises. And promises that concern the future. And for now, right now, as I sojourn as a Christian, I am to walk, I am to live by faith. Well, knowing that, I want to know what this faith is. I want to know what this faith looks like. Let me give you a third reason, a final reason why this subject is so important. The Bible tells us, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 6, that uh, without faith it is impossible to please God. Without faith it is impossible to please God. I can't speak for you, I will speak for me. I hear a verse like that, it resonates in my mind, echoes in my mind, and it causes me to want to know What is this faith? And what does this faith look like? I am saved by faith, through faith. I live by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. What is this faith? To answer that question, we're going to read these two passages of Scripture. We're studying the book of Mark, so our primary concern, our principal concern is the text in Mark chapter 7. But we're going to take the time to read the parallel account in Matthew 15. Because many of the stories we find in Matthew are repeated in Mark and in Luke. Some of them are repeated in John. And so what we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John many times are different accounts, different vantage points of the same incidents. And so Matthew tells us, he describes the incident we're going to read of. Mark describes the incident we're going to read of, and some of the details are different. They're not contradictory, they're complementary. Why? 
Well, you see, Matthew is writing primarily for Jews. His audience consists of Jews. And he's principally describing the Lord Jesus as a great king. Well, that's not why Mark's writing. Mark's writing primarily to Gentiles. And he's describing the Lord Jesus as a servant. And so they're writing to different audiences. They're writing for different reasons, compelled by different motives. And so under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, they latch on to different details. And so I want to read both of these accounts of the same incident because a couple of the details that Matthew includes, Mark doesn't. And yet I think they are invaluable for our understanding of this incident as a whole. So you found the two texts. So follow along firstly as I begin reading in Matthew 15, verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, two cities in a a region known as Phoenicia, north of Israel. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord. Son of God, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So much for Matthew. Secondly, Mark's account. Chapter 7, verse 24. And from there he arose, that is Christ, arose, and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Now in your mind's eye, just back to Matthew's account for a moment. Verse 28, as his description of this incident draws to a close, uh, he records these words of the Lord Jesus. Mark doesn't record these words. but The Lord Jesus Christ says to this woman, great is your faith. Here's what I want to know. I want to know what makes her faith great. Knowing that I am saved by grace through faith, I want to know what great faith looks like. Knowing that I am called to live my life by faith, I want to know what great faith looks like. Knowing that it is important Possible to please God apart from faith. Again, I want to know what great faith looks like. Well, the Lord Jesus himself, he identifies this woman's faith. He used this, this descriptive. He describes her faith as great. The question is this, what makes her faith great? 
or in more general terms, what makes faith great? The answer is fourfold, four characteristics. Number one, great faith is desperate. Great faith is desperate. Look at verse 25 in Mark chapter 7. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. And so here's a woman, nameless, with a little daughter, a small child, who is demon-possessed. You go back to chapter 5 and, and you remember that the Lord Jesus enters a region known as the land of the Gerasenes. And there he encounters a man who is demon-possessed. Do you remember how that man is described? He is living by himself among the tombs, mutilating himself. And there Mark is impressing upon us how destructive demon possession is. We aren't given very many details as to this little girl's status. We are not given a detailed description of how this demon afflicts her. And yet we know it is destructive. Matthew tells us, Matthew records these heart-wrenching words of this mother as she considers the condition of her daughter. The demon severely oppresses her. She is severely oppressed. We can empathize somewhat with her, can't we? The parents among us. Our children's misery becomes our misery. And from what people tell me, it doesn't matter what age they are, whether they're 2, 20, or 60, our children's misery becomes our misery. We want to alleviate their misery. We want to take their place when, when, when they experience pain or anguish or hurt or suffering. There is something in us that compels us to help. Here is a woman, empathize with her situation. She is helpless. Her daughter is in the grips of this demon. This demon severely oppresses her. This woman's situation can only be described as desperate. And she throws herself at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the first mark of great faith. Great faith is desperate. Mark number two. Great faith is repentant. Look at the 26th verse. Still in Mark 7. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. I want us to realize, let's use a little baseball metaphor. I want us to realize that this woman has three strikes against her. She is out. Strike number one is this. Mark tells us she is a Gentile. That is her idolatry. Strike number two is this, Mark tells us, she is a Syrophoenician. That is her nationality. That is strike number two. Mark doesn't mention this, but Matthew does. This woman is a Canaanite. That is her history. Three strikes, she is out. Her idolatry, she is a Gentile. She belongs to an idolatrous people and is herself an idolater. Her nationality, she is not Jewish. She does not belong to the commonwealth of Israel. She is a Syrophoenician by birth. And her very history, she is a Canaanite. She has come from a people who were devoted to destruction at the times of the 
conquest. This is who she is. This is her identity. And yet she does two things. Mark records clearly the first. It is this. She comes to Jesus. In coming to Jesus, what is she doing? She is separating herself from. She is distinguishing herself from. She is turning her back upon who she is. She is turning her back upon her idolatry, her identity, her nationality. She is turning her back upon her history. She is leaving it all behind. She is acknowledging that what she is leaving is displeasing in God's sight. And the second thing she does, Mark doesn't record it, and this is what, one of the reasons why I took the time to read Matthew's account. Matthew tells us that as she comes to the Lord Jesus, she addresses him how? As the son of David. This is a Gentile. This is a Syrophoenician. This is a Canaanite. What is she doing? She is identifying her hope with the promised Messiah. She is identifying her hope with the Lord Jesus Christ. She is a Gentile, as Paul describes Gentiles in his epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 2, toward the end. They are without God, having no hope in the world. Well, here is a woman who displays penitence. Here is a woman who displays repentance. How? She has forsaken who she is, an idolater. She has turned her back on what she has always been. And she has now invested her hope in whom? God's anointed, the promised one, the Messiah. Great faith is repentant. Third mark of great faith is this. It is humble. We see it in Mark's account. She falls at his feet at the end of verse 25. It's even more apparent in Matthew's account. Again, that's chapter 15. I'm thinking primarily of verse 22 where she comes to the Lord Jesus and she cries, Have mercy on me. Here is a woman who has no sense of entitlement. She does not come to the Lord Jesus and say to him, Look, do this for me. Because, I, because I, I merit it. Or do this for me because I'm, because I'm good. Uh, do this for me because somehow I have earned it. She does not appeal to her own goodness. She appeals to Christ's goodness. And her appeal is to mercy. Have mercy on me. Understand, friend, the distinction between grace and mercy. This is very important. God's grace is the manifestation of his goodness toward those who haven't earned it. That's what God's grace is. His grace is the the revelation, the showing forth of his goodness toward people who have not earned it. That means that God is always gracious in his dealings with his creatures. Even before the fall, God's act of creation was an act of grace. His creation of Adam and Eve was an act of grace. His provision of the garden was an act of grace. This wasn't anything they had earned. God's grace is the manifestation of his goodness toward those who haven't earned it. Now, distinguish between God's grace and his mercy. God's mercy is the manifestation of his goodness toward those who have earned the opposite. Do you see the difference? His grace is the manifestation of his goodness toward those who haven't earned it. They haven't merited it. 
his mercy is the manifestation of his goodness toward those who have actually earned and merited the opposite. Do you understand this woman's cry? Have mercy on me. What is she acknowledging? I don't deserve it. As a matter of fact, I deserve the opposite. This is a woman who approaches Christ in poverty of spirit, no sense of entitlement, broken, humbled, fully understanding who she is as a sinner and as an idolater, fully understanding, fully aware of the fact that Christ owes her nothing. He is not obliged to help her. There is nothing in her that will compel him to help her. Her appeal is to mercy. Have mercy on me. That is the third mark of great faith. It is humble. The fourth mark of great faith is this. It is persistent. Again, Matthew's account. Again, that's chapter 15, in case you've forgotten. Verse 23. And there Matthew includes a couple of details that Mark Mark doesn't pick up on. And in those details, and coupled with Mark's account, we see that this woman, as she comes to the Lord Jesus, and as she cries, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed. We discover that she experiences three challenges to her faith. Three challenges. And in each of these, we see her persistence. The first challenge is silence. That's Matthew chapter 15, verse 23. That as she cries out, she faces unbearable silence. The Lord Jesus does not utter a word. Now, Christ has his own reason for doing that. She's on a learning curve, and Christ is strengthening and cultivating her faith But how do you think she interprets that? What do you think is running through her mind? As she's running around, Mark tells us that she's begging. That that verb beg, it's actually a progressive present in the original language, and it's lost in the English translation. What it literally means is she keeps on begging. So it's not like she enters the Lord Jesus Christ's presence and says, "Uh, Have mercy on me, son of David. My, my, My daughter is severely oppressed. No, she keeps on begging. She keeps repeating it. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. You can picture the people surrounding her and she kind of peeks over someone's shoulder and pushes her way through the crowd and tries to get his attention. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And there is nothing but silence. How do you think she is tempted to interpret that? He wants nothing to do with a Gentile woman. He wants nothing to do with a Syrophoenician. He wants nothing to do with a Canaanite. That is how she could have easily misinterpreted his silence. Yet she persists. The second challenge to her faith, her request, is this. It is coldness. And this comes out of Matthew chapter 15, verse 23, because you see the disciples, they they view her as a pest. She's pestering us. And so what do they ask the Lord Jesus to do? Send her away. This is embarrassing. 
Jumping around this crowd, trying to get Christ's attention and crying out, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. And then she hears, maybe it's Peter, maybe it's John, maybe it's Matthew, maybe it's James. Say, just send her away, just send her away. I can almost picture, I'm not talking to you. This is none of your business. You can't help me. I'm talking to him. And she persists. And then the third challenge to her persistence. The first was silence, unbearable silence. The second was the disciples' own coldness of heart, lack of compassion. And the third was this, contempt. Now, you better put a word in front of contempt, apparent contempt. In the words of the Lord Jesus himself, in verse 27 in Mark 7, let the children be fed first. Who are the children? Jews, Israel. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dog. Who are the dogs? The Gentiles. Who's a Gentile? This woman. Ergo, who's a dog? This woman. That's apparent contempt. The Lord Jesus is clearly indicating that as the promised Messiah and in accordance with the covenants God made with Israel, going back to the Abrahamic covenant, He is clearly indicating and revealing that salvation is to the Jews first in order of priority. That he himself is a Jew. That he himself is the fulfillment of that messianic hope. That he is the fulfillment of all of those promises and covenants. And that he has come and he comes firstly to the Jews. Yes, his mission will extend to the Gentiles. He's already made a foray into the land of the Gerasenes where he healed one Gentile and cast out a demon. But for right now, he is focusing primarily on the house of Israel. He has sent his disciples out to preach to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. First things first. And woman, do you understand who you are? And she persists. And her response in the 28th verse is wonderful. Yes, Lord. She's not offended, which is remarkable. Her nose isn't out of joint. She doesn't go off in a huff. Well, how dare you speak to me like that? No. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. I know who I am. And I know what I deserve. And yet, Lord, as you dispense grace, and as your kingdom comes, and as you preach now, even what you are dispensing to the children. As those children eat, the crumbs fall from the table to the ground where the dogs themselves eat of it. That's all I want. Just give me a crumb. That's all I am after. Oh, this woman. I wish we knew her name. Such persistence. In the face of silence, what a challenge. In the face of coldness. And now in the face of an apparent Contempt. She persists. Four marks of great faith. It is desperate. It is repentant. It is humble. 
and it is persistent. And the Lord Jesus can't help himself. Verse 29, what's his response? He said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. In the face of such faith, he cannot resist. He cannot help himself. And as Matthew records it, indeed, woman, your faith is great. Now I realize God saves me by grace through faith. I realize I'm called to live by faith. And I realize I know it because the Bible makes it clear that without such faith, it is impossible to please God. And so I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And out of desperation, I believe. Because I know in my own sinfulness, I am helpless. We saw that last Sunday, didn't we? We saw that it is out of the heart that evil comes. It is out of the heart that wickedness comes. It is out of the heart that defilement comes. I know the condition of my heart. I know the wickedness of my heart. And out of desperation, I cry out to God for help. It is a cry of desperation. Great faith is repentant. I turn from my love of self. Turn from my idolatry and all of my misconceptions concerning God. And I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And great faith is humble. I come in poverty of spirit and my only plea is to his mercy. I don't come with any sense of entitlement. I don't come thinking I've ever done anything pleasing in God's sight. But I appeal to his mercy and his mercy alone. And my faith is persistent. I have found the only one who can help me. And whatever this life brings, whatever comes my way, whatever discourages I encounter, I will not let go. That is great faith. Now, if you're following along in the sermon notes, you will notice there are seven blanks at the bottom of the page. I thought that was a little ambitious, so I've reduced them to five And I want to take what these texts teach us concerning great faith, these four marks, these four characteristics of great faith. And here's what I want to do, friend. I want to just sort of drop them into your life. Okay, we understand. We get the picture. We see see what, what Scripture is revealing here. We hear the Lord Jesus say, indeed, your faith is great. We now know what that means, these four attributes, those four characteristics. And I just want want to drop them right into our lives, wherever we are at this moment, and affirm five glorious truths. Five glorious truths. Number one, the first is this. Great faith. Great faith rests on Christ's unbounded mercy. There's a point of application. Point number one by way of application for us. Great faith rests on Christ's unbounded mercy. This woman, remember, is a Gentile. This woman is a Canaanite. This woman is a Syrophoenician. This woman is an idolater. This woman is a sinner. Her appeal, have mercy on me. We see in her the first beatitude, do we not? Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We see the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn or sorrowful, for they shall be comforted. We see the third beatitude. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We see the fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Friend, sinner, dare I address you as such. I include myself in the equation, sinners. Do we understand that Christ in his mercy cannot resist those who come to him in poverty of spirit? He can't help himself. And when we are burdened with the weight of our sin, when we're overcome and we're desperate and we're struggling with habitual sin, we're struggling with sins that we commit that defy explanation and in our moments of anguish it perplexes us how we could possibly have done such a thing, engaged in such a thing, and we wonder to ourselves, how is it possible that God could forgive us yet again? Here we have this wonderful assurance. We see it in this woman. She testifies to it. Scripture testifies to it in its entirety that when we come to Him in humility, When we come to him in brokenness, when we come to him in poverty of spirit, he abounds in mercy. Understand, friend, the greatest sin is no impediment to God's forgiveness. The greatest sin is no impediment to God's grace and mercy. When we feel it and when we know it. And in that moment of desperation, when we come to him confessing our sin, we have this full assurance that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Great faith rests on unbounded mercy. Second point of application is this. Great faith rests on Christ's unchallenged authority. So the first was his unbounded mercy. The second is his unchallenged authority. And this is seen throughout Mark's gospel account. It's seen particularly in this text that we've just read toward the end where he says to this woman, verse 29, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Verse 30, And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Christ doesn't have to go to where this child is. Christ doesn't have to see this child. He doesn't have to touch this child. He doesn't have to say anything to this child. The distance could be 10 meters. It could have been miles. She could have been halfway around the world. It would have made no difference. Here we see his un challenged authority. Mark has made it clear back in chapter 3 when the scribes and the Pharisees, they come up from Jerusalem and they accuse the Lord Jesus of performing these miracles. In particular, they accuse the Lord Jesus of casting out demons by the power of the devil himself, Beelzebub. And Christ responds, utter nonsense, gibberish. The fact that, that would mean his house is divided against himself. The fact that I am casting out demons, I'm not doing that by the power of the devil. That would mean the devil was fighting against himself. On the contrary, the fact that I am casting out demons means this, that the strong man has been bound. And I am now plundering his house before his very eyes. And he is helpless, impotent to do anything about it. It is unchallenged authority. We see it again in chapter 5 in the land of the Gerasenes. That man who comes to him who's been mutilating himself, living among the tombs, power and strength, able to break chains, possessed by demons, collectively known as legion. And legion, 
When the Lord Jesus utters that command, come out of the man, what choice does he have but to come out? And Legion, even in his desire to possess something as silly and futile as a herd of pigs, must ask permission from the Son of God Most High. You see, he possesses unchallenged authority. Great faith rests on Christ. Great faith rests on his unbounded mercy. And great faith rests on his unchallenged authority. Thirdly, third point of application. Great faith rests on Christ's unlimited sovereignty. This woman is wonderful. Again, consider the three strikes. Her idolatry, she's a Gentile. Her nationality, she's a Syrophoenician. Her history, she is a Canaanite. She is one of his lost sheep. And he goes looking for her. And he finds her. And the darkest, deepest idolatry is no impediment to sovereign grace. The darkest, deepest idolatry cannot keep the shepherd away. The shepherd goes looking for his sheep, and here we see his unrivaled, unchallenged, unlimited sovereignty. As he enters into the deepest idolatry, the deepest sin, and this woman who has been idolater her entire life, This woman who has lived in utter, absolute darkness her entire life. This woman who is a very descendant of the Canaanites. Christ has gone looking for her. Christ has found her. And now Christ saves her. Revealing to us, impressing upon us his unlimited sovereignty. One of my favorite phrases from the pen of David Livingston, famous explorer, geographer, missionary, is as follows. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Out of the book of Habakkuk. Book of Isaiah 2. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Therefore, we can afford to work in faith. For divine omnipotence is pledged to fulfill the promise. Great faith rests on Christ's unlimited sovereignty. Fourth point of application is this. Great faith waits on God. Great faith waits on God. He answered her, not a word. Remember, she's begging. It's a present progressive. She's continually begging. She's constantly begging. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And there's nothing but silence, but she isn't deterred. She waits and she persists. Samuel Rutherford, commenting on that verse, writes the following. It is said, it is said that Christ answered not a word. It is not said that he heard not a word. It is said that he answered not a word. It is not said that he heard not a word. Christ often hears. Oh, learn this one, Christian. Christ often hears when he does not answer. His not answering is an answer. His not answering is an answer. We saw this a few chapters back. We saw this in the case of Jairus, did we not? There Jairus, that synagogue official, approaches the Lord Jesus. What's his problem? His daughter is back home dying near death. 
And he pleads with the Lord Jesus, begs Christ to, to accompany him to, her, to his home, that he might lay his hand on his daughter and, and heal her of her affliction. And the Lord Jesus sets off with Jairus toward his home. And then he is distracted. All of a sudden, this woman enters into the scene, this woman with a hemorrhage. She sneaks up behind the Lord Jesus, touches the fringe, the hem of his garment, and she's healed. And then he engages her in conversation. And there, Jairus, he just disappears from the narrative. He just recedes into the background. And he must wait. And he must wait. Why? Because this delay in and of itself is designed, it is purposeful. As the Lord Jesus draws out faith from Jairus, faith is like a muscle. And a muscle must be stretched. Um, There must be exertion inflicted on a muscle in order to develop it and strengthen it. So too with faith. And this is what the Lord Jesus is putting Jairus through. You wait. And as he waits, his faith is strengthened to the degree that now his daughter is not only sick, she is dead. And he must continue to fix his faith on Christ. You see, waiting, not answering, it is divinely appointed, it is divinely designed. And we must understand this, it is difficult to learn this. And it is extremely difficult because we're the most impatient creatures on the face of the earth. Extremely difficult to learn this. That his not answering is an answer. I've given you these four truths before at least a couple of times. I'm going to repeat them. And God willing, if I spend 30, 40 years here, I'll repeat them a thousand times because here they are. Because you'll still be learning them 30, 40 years from now, as will I. First is this. When we understand that faith waits on God, God does not share our sense of urgency. Never has and he never will. He does not share our sense of urgency. Number two, God never operates on our time schedule. Number three, and however much this might shock us, it is true. God never consults with us. Never. You may think he does, you are sorely mistaken. He never has and he never will. He never consults with us. And number four, God has his divinely appointed reasons for delaying. And faith, great faith, learns to wait. So much of the Christian life is about waiting. We pray kingdom come. The hope is all fixed toward the future. And here we are called to live by faith. And so much of that faith is expressed and manifested in patiently waiting, in persistently enduring. It is a mark of great faith, a faith that waits on God. And here's the fifth and final point of application. Great faith perseveres in prayer. That's what that woman does. In the face of silence, in the face of coldness, and in the face that challenge of apparent contempt, she persists. Great faith perseveres in prayer. Christ himself taught us that in the Sermon on the Mount. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. What is he describing? He is describing persistence. A persistence that arises out of what? Desperation. A persistence that arises out of 
brokenness and humility. A persistence that arises out of repentance. Now, Terry Johnston has written the following. Let me share it with you. He asks, what do you want, Christian? That is a good question. Right now, at this very moment, what do you want? Are you seeking good gifts as God defines good? Are you seeking to become a man of God or a woman of God? Do you want to be poor in spirit? Do you want to be meek? Do you want to be merciful? Do you want to be pure in heart and hunger and thirst after righteousness? Do you want to be the salt of the earth? Do you want to be the light of the world? Do you want to be a city set out on a hill? Do you want your righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Do you want to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect? Do you want to practice your righteousness in secret and not before men as the hypocrites do? Do you want to lay up your treasures in heaven and not on earth? Do you want to serve God alone and not mammon? Do you want to trust God and not be anxious about life and about what you shall eat or drink or with what you will clothe yourself? Do you want to seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness? Do you want to avoid being judgmental? Then, Christian, you will need to pray. And if this is what you really want, you are going to persist in prayer. You are going to plead. You are going to beg. You are going to return again and again and again, asking, beseeching, seeking, knocking, until you get that which you require. And you can pray in the confidence that your Father will hear that prayer. But the real question is this. What do you want? What do you want? You see, great faith. Yes, it is desperate. Yes, it is repentant. Yes, it is humble. And yes, it is persistent. That as we understand ourselves in the light of Scripture, and as we understand our great God in the light of Scripture, as we understand the gospel as revealed and declared in Scripture, as we understand the plan of salvation as manifested in Scripture, as we understand what it is God has called us to and what he promises us and what he commands us to do, we perceive our need. And as we perceive our need, we pray. And as we pray, we pray like this woman. We persist. We ask, knowing it will be given to us. We seek, knowing we will find. And we knock, knowing he will open that door unto us. That, my friends, is great faith. And so I reason to myself, well, salvation is by grace through faith. I now see what that means. Christians are called to live by faith. I get it. I see what that looks like. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. I now know what that means. I now understand what God is doing in me. I now understand the afflictions and the struggles and the problems and the tribulations. He is encouraging me and he is inviting me to magnify and glorify him by trusting him. 
Oh, may God, by his spirit, give us grace to understand these things. May he give us grace to live according to them. Bow with me now as we close with a word of prayer. Our God, we do not dare to come to your table trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose nature is always to have mercy. And so, our God, we do appeal to your mercy this day. Mercy for the life to which you have called us. Mercy for the trials and tribulations which you have placed in our lives. Mercy for the secret and quiet struggles that we endure. Mercy as we seek to mortify sin in our lives. Mercy as we seek to honor and glorify you. We pray that you be merciful in pouring out your spirit upon us, hearing and granting this request. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we ask it. Amen.